You have to push into what makes you nervous, and you have to take on the opportunities that give you that pit in your stomach, and I find that those are often the most exciting ones. Hey, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis, and if you're a regular here, welcome back. If you're new, well, welcome to you as well. Every week, I sit across from one of the most influential women from all different industries and talk to her about her life, her career, the tough choices that she's had to make along the way, the trade-offs. These are the questions that I know we're all asking ourselves every single day on our journeys. And I'm talking to her beyond the resume, from decision-making to the trade-offs, the most pivotal moments, the worst advice that she's received along the way. I want all of you to be a fly on the wall in the lives of these incredibly successful women and to be able to absorb some of that knowledge and wisdom that they've had to gain, frankly, through hardship and struggle. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Okay, No Limits, we have an extremely impressive guest with us today. She's the first ever CEO of Madewell, one of the few really successful brands right now at a difficult time for retail. She was one of the early pioneers behind the company and she helped incubate it inside of J. Crew. Her decades of experience in retail include time at Coach and Gap, where she worked with retail legend Mickey Drexler, who she calls a mentor. Plus, she's now on track to be the CEO of a public company since Madewell just last week filed plans to IPO. Our conversation was recorded before the news, but I had a feeling this was coming. So, of course, I had to ask. Take a listen. Libby Wadle, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. I'm so happy you're here. I've wanted to have this conversation with you for a while because I've been following your star rising um, inside of the retail industry. You built the Madewell brand from the ground up. Well, it's a team effort, but thank you. Thank well, you. I, I recognize that it's a team <laughs> effort, but in all things, it requires if they're going to be a grand slam the way yeah. that the way that Madewell has become, you need a leader behind it. And one of the things I want to talk about in our conversation today is the idea of building something within a larger company, mm-hmm. because I think there are a lot of people who right now, the, the, this is a moment where people think, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start my own thing. Right. But sometimes it's nice to start something with in a large company where a lot of things already exist. Absolutely. And then to yeah. be able to, assuming that that great large company is entrepreneurial yeah. and, and it on board have to have with it. a bit of that entrepreneurial spirit for sure to start with. How did you end up in retail in the first place? Well, I mean, I I worked uh, at the mall when I was like 14. Before I was old enough to actually get a job in a store, which which I really wanted to do, I I got the job at at the ice cream counter across the street, across the hall from <laughs> the store. That's a hard job, the scooping, right? It was right? hard because it was not, it's funny, It's now it's all about like gelato and, and things <laughs> like that. But this was straight up regular ice cream and you, yes, you needed to... Like get the spoon wet before you got into that. <laughs> this that isn't hard sixteen handles where no, you just it, no, turn, people no. self serve it. So you started out there. You probably learned a lot about customer service. At yeah, that I mean, point. listen, I was there for I don't know how long. My mom could tell you, but I um, I went right into working in retail in high school, and then went to college in Boston and got a part time job uh, and fed my habit of just loving to sort of 
buy clothes, be a part of the apparel business, chatting with customers and 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 did the college thing and the working thing. And it really worked for me at the same time at the same time. Were you certain then when you went to college about what career path you wanted for yourself? Well, no, I don't think I was certain. I was an English major in college. I think, you know, looking back, I'm so glad that I sort of uh, chose to just continue to do uh, what I was into and, and sort of reading and writing and and uh, authors and all of that. I was, you know, I was I was sort of passionate about that. I didn't think that I wanted to go into teaching. I didn't think necessarily that I wanted to be a lawyer, which is often a lot of English ma- majors do. Um, but um, I didn't know. I think that's okay. You know, totally. But it's not always – I mean, you hear stories now that you sort of have to know ahead of time. I really didn't know. But that, – so I'll, that said, there was this idea out there, I think. I'd heard about this job that existed um, called being a buyer, and that just sounded cool. I mean, I like to buy things. What's Yeah, exactly, <laughs> which is not exactly how being a buyer no turns no. out to be, right? No. No, no, but you know there is a component of you know sort of using your intuition and your gut to yeah. sort of you know pick the best sellers, uh, and so uh, I didn't. But I uh, frankly didn't know what it really meant, uh, and that's probably fine. That's a really a good thing when I think about it. And um, so I, I think that there was a little bit of that that I knew about when I was young in the business. Uh, just working in a store, sort of understanding where things were coming from when we got that shipment in the store. Uh, and I probably appreciated it even more when I was in college working in the store and sort of, you know, you get to that sort of junior and senior year, you start it, you do sort of have to start figuring out what your next step is. So it's probably when I sort of got more laser focused on what I wanted to do. And once you were laser focused, what types of things were you doing to, to distinguish yourself? Yeah, I mean, I did some internships. I did did things like that. But really, I just did a lot of work to to make money in college. And and uh, today, I think there's a lot more in terms of, you know, you have to do an internship starting your sophomore year, and then you go abroad, and then you do, you know, we were a little less prescriptive. And uh, I, I did do sort of, I, I explored the traditional route of um, being in retail and buying. I interviewed for a, um, a buying training program, for New York's in New York City, and that didn't go very well. What went wrong? Well, he asked me my SAT scores in the interview, and well, I knew right away this person who's asking my SAT scores. I've already gotten into college, yeah, and I've been through. And don't make me who cares at that well, point. Not to mention, I didn't want to talk about my SAT scores <laughs> at the interview, and to me, it was just a reflection of. Probably the type of place it was, uh-huh. and so uh, I I did not get the job. I don't think it was because of my SAT scores, but I I, I did not get that job, and I think it was just a, a gift, really, because it allowed me to say, okay, what do I really want to do? There was some really interesting stuff at that point uh, in retail and in fashion going on on the West Coast. What year was this? Around? This was in nineteen ninety four. Okay, so would that be like the Gap things that yep. were happening? Yep. Okay, and it was a uh, there was just really exciting things happening at that brand. And that was the brand, or I actually worked for Banana Republic then, owned by The Gap. And Which was just coming into yeah, it its was own bef- at that time. Totally. Yeah, it was a, it was getting very hot at that point. Um, and these were very early days. And uh, so I said, okay, well, I don't have a job. I'll just sort of uh, take what I was sort of the connections that I made at the store 
and um, parlayed that into a role on the West Coast. So I moved to San Francisco. I didn't know a soul. From Boston. From Boston. You I, knew no one. No. And I, I look back now and I'm like, I can't believe I did that. I knew no one. Actually, the one person I knew actually moved back to the East Coast before I got there. <laughs> were you concerned about it at all? Or were you just kind of like, this is what people do after college? They no, move. I wasn't at the time. I should have been more concerned, I guess. Or I I, I no. I mean, I, I had this job you. at a store. I lived in a friend's uh, dad's apartment. <laughs> uh, so I didn't pay rent for a little bit, which was helpful. And uh, yeah, just started working. So it's an interesting thing you talk about learning inside of Banana Republic in those early days when it was just coming into its own. What do you think it is that makes brands hot in certain moments? Yeah, I mean, I think with Banana, it was really interesting, you know, uh, and then I eventually, uh, in short order, went into a, a new training program, um, at The Gap and Banana Republic, and and so sort of got into the ground floor with those brands when they were sort of starting to become really hot. And as a young buyer. As a young buyer. And you the connection to sort of what the customer was saying was paramount back then. And, you know, the way we listen to the customer today has changed. But it's um, I do believe that's the reason why those brands uh, were so good is because, you know, they really they really cared and listened. I mean, when I worked at the store in Boston, you know, the it was all about the client. It was all about understanding what she wanted and listening and then passing that feedback on. And, um, you know, Banana really, we, we built this amazing pants business back in the day when women used to wear like a black stretch pant. It was yes. the uniform. Now the uniform, thankfully, is denim much more. but <laughs> Which is Madewell. Which well. is great for Madewell, right. But that was really in a day that, you know, fit mattered um, and... And you had to listen to what she was saying. Um, and it was still, it was, it all goes, it was the same ingredient, sort of a different beast, but, you know, rise and fit and mm-hmm. length and stretch and all of that. Um, and, you know, we used all of the information that we heard and built a really great business out of it. And you talk about the fact that you were listening to your customer. Now there are a million more ways to listen to that customer. A million, yes. Um, which, clearly is probably part of the business that you're in now, part of what makes Madewell so successful that you're listening and you're really able to listen. When you think back to that period in time, what were the things you were doing to transition to the next role? And how were you even thinking about that? Did you have a specific title in mind at that time? Yes, of course. You did? Oh, yes. I mean, I think... You know, I would sit back and when I started, we'd have these big merchandising meetings and, you know, you sit in the back row as an assistant and you're sort of running around and grabbing the samples. You just do what needs to get done. And I always did what needs to get done. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't care. I just wanted to really be in the be mix. in there. And I also I remember I had this. I mean, this was before people had um, phones. I mean, we had phones, but they were connected to things. <laughs> Uh, a cord so, in the right, wall. Right. So I had, uh, you know, I had my pad of paper and we, I would take just I would take tons of notes about the questions being asked mm. and the answers. So I would know eventually when I got up in front that to anticipate just so that what ability they would ask to you. anticipate. It's yes. not it's not gut. You really do have to be prepared. And so that was my way of being prepared, sort of li- really listening and I just think the listening piece has just been a skill that's allowed me to sort of continue to move on. That to me is a very, in this moment especially, underrated, we're not we're not always applauding good listening or yeah. observing. 
And when you think about it, to be a good listener and an observer is a big part of what you need to do if you're building a business, too. Also moving up inside of a business. Absolutely. So when you ultimately made the leap out of banana, how did you think about that? What were you doing? I think it was just time for a change in my life and and uh, a move made sense. I moved to New York and eventually landed with J. Crew and uh, sort of started at the ground in the ground floor of a, a business that we were building there, which was at that point the the factory business that sort of didn't exist. It was at that point, you know, used to go to the outlet center to get like the extras. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was J. Crew was very much a catalog business. And so we sold we had like 40 stores and we sold just sort of the excess. And uh, I sort of uh, was given the job with the ability to do what I wanted to do to make it into uh, a business on its own, a stand-up business. And I sort of found what I love to do in that. I had never really been part of, other than, you know, I'd built the pants business and I, you know, um, built businesses within existing businesses. But to really be able to sort of become a general manager and uh, take on scope and take on people that I don't know how to do their jobs. That was, for me, a great next step. And it's a great way to stretch yourself um, rather than just sort of moving straight up and exactly what you know how to do is to take on pieces of the business that you might not know how to do. And you really learn how to, I think, be a good leader by listening to people who are better at things than you are and, and really learn and grow that way. How about managing people? How did you figure that part of it out? I don't know that I ever really thought about that as much as uh, I think I I manage people um, the way they need to be managed individually. And I don't have like a one size fits all mm-hmm. approach. You know, you can manage. There are certain people who don't want to be that managed and that's OK. And because they sort of are pretty self-sufficient and you know when to check in. And then there's other people that just want more connection points and I never I never took a management course. Well, I think there way back when when I was like 28 or something I took this course called situational self-leadership. <laughs> you know, and I have to say it actually made a pretty lasting impression because it taught you that really you have to you can't expect that every everyone sort of conforms to how you want to yes. lead and manage. You really have to sort of be in have an individual approach and that tends to be the most effective and it's it's worked for me. I'm sure everyone's listening has had one of those managers that goes in the one size fits all uh, category and the things that come out of their mouth are laughable. It's like, this is, did you learn this in the business 101 class, the single business 101 class that you took? Okay. So you're, you're learning a new type of business, Mm -hmm. essentially managing people. Mickey Drexler Mm -hmm. becomes an important mentor in your life. Mickey Drexler, who built J. Crew. I mean, most people think of Mickey as the godfather, frankly, of the retail business. Yeah, he, he, well, he bu- he built the gap as well. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so what did you what did you learn from him? I mean, so much. Number I, one I thing. I summarize, that. <laughs> summarize it in one word. No. I'm well, kidding. I think. Well, I you know, I think the customer and the listening component. I definitely learned from from him, and and I sort of carry that with me um, in in everything I do because that's uh, that's relevant always. Is you know whether you're in the stores talking to associates, whether you're in a conversation at a dinner and you sort of hear that, you know, someone found a gene that they love and you want to hear more about why and what do they love about it or what they don't love about it. I think that that listening component probably is is the piece that really stays with me. 
when did you realize, because Madewell has become wildly successful, and you mentioned it, on the jeans business. Mm -hmm. Denim is the thing. Yes. Where did you realize that? How did you get to that end point? It took us a a bit of time. Madewell's been around for a little more than 12 years now. We feel a little bit younger than that uh, because we definitely had... Uh, we took some time to figure out who we were, and uh, we really put our stake in the ground uh, on denim at a time, at an interesting time. It was really when people started to migrate towards wearing very casual uh, athleisure, uh, yoga pants, and things like that uh, on their sort of off time. And um, what we did was there was also, though, at that point, this amazing, you probably remember this amazing, really premium denim business out there. And jeans were really expensive. If you wanted great jeans that fit really, really well, they Mm -hmm. were very expensive. They were over $200. Not everyone could, you know, have that. And um, and so we really sort of had some initial momentum in the business and some things we were trying in denim. And we really just decided to double down on on owning that category, knowing that we say this at Madewell all the time. But it's really true that we say it's also true with hair, but we say it with jeans. Good days start with great jeans. <laughs> so because, you know, if you feel really good in your jeans, you know, you build your own outfit around that. Uh, and you, it always your best jeans, your most favorite jeans hold a very special place in your closet and and when they're dirty and you, you're yeah. in trouble yeah and honestly you should not wash your jeans all the time yeah i mean I how often you should that. you wash your jeans you really well there's some there are some schools of thought that say you should never wash your jeans i can't, I can't do, that. do that no right? no right no when you can smell your jeans no. yeah. you need but to wash i, I will your tell jeans. you there are some denim heads out there that say just don't wash your jeans now is there the, is that the someone said something about putting them in the freezer. Yep, you. I've heard. I have you ever put your I've, jeans in I've the freezer? No, but you know you can do that with sneakers as well. I have done that with my and they don't sneakers smell anymore. They're so smelly. Yes, yes. Really, it's weird. I know, but in the city, I live. I live in the city. I think you live in the city. Yes. I don't have a big enough freezer to put my jeans. <laughs> in. I. That's precious space, yeah, right? No, I know. Fascinating. Okay, so it's okay if you don't wash them regularly, but how frequently are you supposed to wash your jeans? I mean, I wash my jeans probably once every three wears, depending, obviously. Yeah. But also, yeah, because it helps. Sometimes you want to get the – generally our jeans are are great because they hold their shape very, very well, and they have the right amount of stretch in them. And And they don't shrink once you wash them. No. That's the worst. You have your favorite pair of jeans. You wash them. They get back just right, and then you put them on, and there's always that moment, but then you wear them for a little. I mean, some jeans, you know, you have to, you have a relationship with them. You know, you put them on. You you sort of, how am I feeling today? Well, I feel okay because my my jeans fit really well. <laughs> or I just went on vacation, but I'm not gonna you know worry about sort of letting loose because my jeans fit really well. And so, you know, I you know they it's it's funny the relationship people have with jeans. I think it's important and it's a great business to be in because of that. That's a good point. I never thought of that. So. Building this business inside of J. Crew, were you given the keys to the castle and said, go do it? Or how did you, you, you talked about those initial days when you were trying to figure out what is made well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you think about that? And how did you go from being inside of J. Crew, this company, this behemoth, to I want to build something different and special inside this brand? We'll be right back with Libby after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And how did you go from being inside of J. Crew, this company, this behemoth, to I want to build something different and special inside this brand? Well, what was great about being at J. Crew is, as you said sort of very early on in this conversation, it is and has always been a very entrepreneurial environment. And so with Madewell, it started with a very sort of collaborative approach in building that business. I raised my hand. I had another job. I raised my hand to really be a part of building this new job, new business. Was that risky when you raised your hand or was it kind of to you? It didn't feel risky to me. It felt like this is exciting. And I know that I'm sort of on a good track with my current business and I have a great, strong team. Again, going back to having a really good team who you listen to, who know more than you do, is important if you are going to sort of throw your hat into into something additional. And so I was part of a great team of people really building the brand from the very beginning. And, you know, at, there was a point, you know, once we established ourselves as a denim brand where it became very clear that things were working really well and and growing and moving fast. And, and uh, I was able to sort of really focus 100% of my time on driving that business forward. And now you've been with the company Plus 10 years at this point? Uh, plus 10 years, yeah. And yeah. and previously within Gap, you were there for around that, around that yeah, same amount yeah, of time. Yeah. Most, or I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people are moving around a lot more than that yeah. right now. Yeah. It, it, when you think about the pros and cons of staying inside one company for an extended period of time, what kind of advice do you give to other people who are wanting to move up Maybe they feel like they're not moving up fast enough in the organizations they're inside of. Yeah. I mean, I think you need to really make sure. I mean, if you are happy in your company, but you feel like you want more or you're ready for the next thing, I, I would I would encourage everyone to just look around them first within and make sure that there's not sort of something else, some other opportunity within the company that they should be throwing their hat in for before just immediately going external if it's a company that you feel like that you connect with, I mean, mm -hmm. you have to feel that way. And that doesn't, it's not always the case. And so sometimes people go somewhere for, and they, and, and I applaud them for saying, you know, this is not right. And it doesn't look great on a resume to have like this moment of, you know, time, but as long as it's sort of surrounded by some longer tenure, mm -hmm. it, it's, I think, okay. Are you more in favor of the rip the bandaid off? If you get inside a new company and a lot of the time, my experience, and I know a lot of friends, you don't know where the bodies are buried until you get inside. Usually yeah. the most dazzling things are said about a company before you get inside. And then you're inside and it's pretty fast that you get to know that culture. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't know if I'm a fan of Rip the Bandit Off. I certainly am not a fan of, you know, sticking with a bad decision. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in, in anything. And yeah. so, 
you have to determine whether it is if it is a bad decision and you know that then yes you should make the decision to move on there shouldn't be sort of a loyalty component that keeps you um if it's especially something that's fairly short-lived um and and i think you have to really go with your gut Mm -hmm. yeah but i would imagine also the the people who appear to be constantly jumping from place to place to place are not people that you would generally think of hiring doesn't feel good it doesn't look great to me i ask about it when i mean i I, if it makes if, if if it makes it to me and i do meet a lot of candidates i love to meet people who come to work at madewell and sometimes that surprises a lot of people but while we are growing, we're still we 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 think of ourselves as a community, and 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 so it's important to you know chat with as many people as you can. So that is for sure. A, I would say a, a red flag if I see you know lots of small moments. Um, so I will always ask about it. So speaking of growth, yeah. you made half a billion dollars in Yay. revenue last yes, year yes. and you want a little it more. a yeah. little more a little more <laughs> yeah and you've got your eyes on the billion dollar we mark do. yeah how are you going to get there well you know i think going back to the denim conversation it will it will start with denim and i think that business is again because it's such a staple in in everyone's wardrobe will be a major sort of reason for our growth we still have a ways to go in terms of getting more jeans on more people we just launched uh, our men's line uh, last fall in a very very small way, and it's rooted in denim as well. So as a, as as we think of ourselves as a denim brand, and then everything you wear with jeans, we have a ways to go in terms of brand awareness and getting more butts in jeans. I would say. <laughs> How do you yeah. do that? How do you get more butts in jeans? Well, I mean, you have to. It's all about our community, right? So it's all about Instagram. It's, it's all well. Instagram is a it's it's a very important channel for us, and it's very natural for our customer. And she is very vocal. So our 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 brand ambassadors are sort of very casual brand ambassadors, and our our best advocates, our associates, are our best advocates. You know, denim is a sticky, sticky business, and that's a word we use, meaning it's very loyal. So when you get the word out and people hear about what jeans your friend, you know, you see your friend wearing a pair of jeans, where did you get those? The conversation starts. So the conversation we believe will be a a key piece to really growing the brand and growing to that number. And really building a community around that conversation once we engage with her, sort of making her experience as great as possible. How much do you think of Instagram and social media as your customer service channel? I've interviewed Sarah Jessica Parker and Emily Weiss at Glossier, and they both talked about how for them, because they're really young relative to Madewell businesses, they use their Instagram as basically their primary place to talk to their customer. It's really important. It, it's, and it's in the moment and it's real time. You know, we have a lot of, as you talked about, a lot of ways now to listen to the customer and a lot of really interesting ways. But, you know, social and Instagram are very real time ways to engage. And so absolutely a very important channel for us. We have other ways that are also exciting. We have a really fun Madewell group chat that we do, which is really a, sort of a crowdsourcing platform for us that has a sort of a two way dialogue going on. And we have volunteers who who want to be a part of that conversation as well. So um, that's very important for us as well. But for sure, Instagram is very important. In addition to getting the word out with social media, is there anything that you've done in the pursuit of getting more people to wear jeans that 
didn't work that that you would say, wow, this is kind of a surprise. We thought as a team that it was the right thing to do, but it ultimately didn't pay off. I don't think didn't work. I think a level of patience with getting the word out is important. Listen, we uh, expanded our size range last year. We launched into men's. And it's very important when you sort of start to become a more inclusive business that you allow time for the word to get out, that you don't measure measure mm. your results immediately a traditional in traditional retail you would look at your sales as compared to your inventory and determine whether you should be in that business or not it's very important again as you're growing your brand you're growing your brand awareness expanding your size range expanding into new businesses that you sort of allow the time for the word to get out that's tough when you're a public company and mm-hmm. investors want that immediacy we are not public well yeah not yet <laughs> yeah. not yet however uh much like Gap uh, with Old Navy, there's chatter that Madewell could very well be its own IPO. So how do you think about that? Do you want to be a public company? Would you be? Is it in the realm of possibility? I can't even I can't really think about that. And as much as how do I get Madewell to be a billion dollar brand, public, private, I've I've worked in both scenarios before. And at the end of the day, you're on the hook for the customer and still listening to the customer and you're and you're right i think being a public company you know you're on the hook maybe for more reporting there's less more, patience yeah, there's I less think, patience from wall street although i think that there are new business models out there and new ways of measuring and looking at the business that are really relevant to how the customer is shopping today that there's just uh, there's more awareness um, out there and that sort of old legacy ways of you know looking at your business and reporting on your business don't necessarily match to how the customer wants to shop talk a little bit about that because i've noticed lately for example Madewell has some items listed on Rent the Runway. Ah, yes. Available for rent. Yeah. Jen Hyman has been yeah. here, uh, co founder of Rent the Runway, talking about that. So, how do you make decisions like that? Is Does that pay off for you? Where do you see that in your business? You know, we look at our partnerships and we think about that really as a partnership. We're because we're not a wholesaler in general. We think about those opportunities as ways to, and I said this before, get more butts in our jeans and start that conversation. Um, We want to meet her where she is, and primarily that often is within our own channels. But you know, the reality is people want to shop differently. They want to try things differently, and we want to be a part of that community and conversation. And so that's that's sort of how those relationships start. What does retail look like five years and then 10 years from now? Well, I mean, listen, people are still going to want to wear great clothes and look look great. And are they going to go to stores and try them on? I think so. I think for certain categories, trying on nothing, no fit technology can replace the experience you have trying on and having that dialogue with either, either your friend that you're shopping with or the person who's helping you. For, for sure, there are categories of business where it's just, you know, it's all about the convenience of it. But, you know, I think especially with regards to denim and and then that connection with sort of a community and a brand, I think stores, we don't have a ton of stores, but they really remain and they are the hub of the Madewell community. And I think they will be still a key part of the the business. And with, within the J. Crew brand, styling and marketing in their stores they, they were really, in my in my opinion, and I don't know the retail business like you do, so you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but to me, they were the champion, really the good. initial yeah. champion yeah. of 
figuring out how to put an outfit together with components that you might not anticipate. And that was part of the reason, the draw, to be inside a J. Crew store. What is, beyond making sure that that butt looks great in those yeah. made-well jeans, yeah. what's the draw to coming into your stores? Is there something in the future that we're going to be seeing more of? You know, I think that uh, we do a lot of things. Our, we see our, uh, our store directors really as shopkeepers in the community and the, what we've done is obviously we sell product, we sell jeans, we sell other things. But when we go into a new market, we connect with the community through – we have this amazing program. It started on a very sort of grassroots level, and it's become something much bigger today. It's a program called Hometown Heroes. And basically it's your store director opens a store in a, in a new market, and she really connects with local creatives, local artists, local artisans, and invites them into the store to be able to pop up in a way they've never – been able to before reach new audiences and and that sort of ability to connect locally I think is really important at the store level and it really helps define who we are at Madewell because we are about supporting local communities and and sort of bringing the community in um, and it's been sort of very very much a part of the fabric of who we are and building made well and listen sometimes we have we have these great artists come in and some what's the amazing stories are you know I was in our Boulder Colorado store uh, a few a few months ago my parents live there and so I'm I'm in there very often and they know me well and uh, I met our latest uh, one of our latest uh, store managers there and she I asked her how she got there and we were talking about Madewell and she actually was one of our hometown heroes and she's a sculptor and she still has her business and it's it's doing quite well but she was also thrilled to be also be engaged in part of the Madewell community now as an associate and sort of is able to do both so there's a lot of ways that the hometown Heroes program has been able to be a platform for people. Um, and that's really been important to our store business. So beyond selling jeans, it's been, you know, a way to engage with the community. Uh, speaking of your parents and your childhood, I think back to a little Libby. What would she think of this woman now sitting across from me who is now the CEO of Madewell, brought in by most most outside accounts to make this a billion-dollar business that will someday be a public company that will IPO, what would she think of all this? I think she would think it, would, it was pretty cool. Little Libby wanted to be like Annie on Broadway, <laughs> so I didn't get that far. I didn't ever Were you auditioning out. for for um, Star Search in your basement, yeah, just no, like me? I, I, no, <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think we had that yet, but if, if we did or, or whatever they have now. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, listen, my, <laughs> my Nana Laura had an apartment in New York City, and she, I never, I didn't know her then, and then she moved where I grew up, and she, she lived close by. And I always think about her life in the city and 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 the stories she used to tell. And I I don't know about little Libby, but I do know that my grandmother, my Nana Laura, would be very proud of what what this looks like today. And I think I think she'd be proud. What's the biggest surprise to you about what it looks like being in the room now where it happens versus when you were just coming up in the field hoping to get there? I think you still are the same person. I don't know. You look you back then you look sort of to the front of the room to the person talking to the lots of people and you think, wow, they have this life that must feel so different and, and, and they must feel different. And I don't feel that way. I think you're the same person. And I actually think I hope that makes for a good leader 
and mm-hmm. because you sort of remain grounded in in sort of being that that person that you have always been and and not really changing that much. I think that would be the surprise because mm-hmm. I I would think that I guess, you know, sort of looking in awe of people who have big jobs, you always think oh, well, they must live this really sort of extraordinary life and they must just be different. They must be wired different. They don't go to the ATM. They don't go to the grocery <laughs> store. They don't, you know. So you go to the ATM I the grocery I go to the ATM. Store. I go to the, well, I go to the grocery store. I use Fresh Direct a little bit more now, but whatever. Okay. Today's grocery store, yeah. 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 What is a typical day like for you? I know no day is typical, but what are the various components of a day for you, generally speaking? So I'm very happy to say that I've reached a point in my um, in my typical day, and I've dreamt of this when I was a mother of younger kids, and I think you'll appreciate this, is that I'm able to now work out at the beginning of a day. Oh, my goodness. That took a long time. Yeah. Uh, because you you have to sort of get over this hump that happens. and The so, hump of needing to be in the know and being responsive to people and all the yeah. questions come in a flurry at the beginning of the day. Absolutely. And listen, you recognize, okay, I now have to get up at what feels like an ungodly hour to do it, but mm-hmm. you make it a priority. So, you know, a regular day sort of starts with that. And it starts with the kids and the hectic part of sort of getting the family out. I would like to say I have this sort of glamorous routine of meditation and looking at the news on my device and working out, but it's not usually very glamorous. It's making lunches and making sure people get out the door at the same time. You have two kids. I have two kids, yeah. And one is 10. One is 10 and one is eight. Eight. So you you do have your hands full. I always read those day of um, profile type things. <laughs> and I'm always very curious about them. And there's always this part about their coffee or their matcha. And it just sounds so luxurious. It does. And or I the think, supplements they right, take. Right, the yeah. frenzy <laughs> with which my day begins. Yeah. They no. never talk about that no, part. No. But I'm pretty sure it's happening for most everybody it, out there. I think, I think it, it does happen for most everyone. What has been the biggest challenge along the way? Because when I look at your career and you talk about it, it sounds like it kind of all just fell into place. Is that really how it happened? I don't think so. I mean, I I had to raise my hand and and do things that made me nervous. And did really, you get turned down? I, for that first job I did with the SAT right? scores, I got yeah. turned down. I've had a few moments where I think maybe I've made a bad call or the wrong call, and I and I had to learn from that and move on quickly. I think that's important to do that you don't sort of dwell or live in your bad decisions. Mm-hmm. So you learn. You just learn. keep learning I, yeah. and you just keep moving forward, yeah. it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, you you do. You have to you have to push into what makes you nervous, I think. And you have to take on the opportunities that give you that pit in your stomach. And I find that those are often the most exciting ones. Uh, you and I think you just you don't have to check all the boxes in order to raise your hand for that next thing. You have to do the work and you have mm-hmm. to have done the work. And be able to sort of demonstrate that. But I think sometimes women think they have to check all the boxes to move to the next step. And I used to think that and I used to do that. I did a lot of checking the boxes. And I think and I think that the pit in your stomach piece comes from not knowing that you don't have all those boxes checked, but still taking it on. I love that. Such, such good advice. What's the worst advice you've received? You know, <laughs> I'm sure I've, a lot of bad advice, I'm sure. But, you know, I, I honestly, I think probably as a, a start young mother, you know, first kid, you get a lot of advice. You get a, a lot. lot of advice. A lot. 
And there was a lot of, I think, sort of bad advice or I, I don't even know exactly what it is, but it's, the, you know, I think any advice that makes you feel like you would be judged if you sort of, you know, uh, need your husband to pitch in, your mom to pitch in, your neighbor to pitch in. Like it just takes a lot of help and support to, you know, do all of these jobs because you're it's not just one job. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to do what's right for you in order to sort of get up and, and function through the day and feel good about it. And and so you have to be careful when you're starting out with a young family that you don't listen to all of the advice that everyone yes. just wants to give you. Because right. I think there's a lot of everyone has a very personal experience and you sort of need to sort of cherry pick what you think sounds right and, and, and make it right for you. Totally. I, I'm constantly right now now that I'm back at work with my first baby hearing things and I'm like, okay, I get that that worked for you and I understand that you're telling me I have to do this or my life is going to go blah, but I'm just going to try it my way for right. a little bit right? and right. I can always change it up. Yeah, it gets very judgy out there, so you have to be careful. <laughs> I'm being very careful and I really appreciate yeah. that advice, yeah. Libby. Yeah. Thank you so much for no joining problem. us on No Thank Limits. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Okay, it's the end of the interview. Thank you, Libby. And that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our No Limits listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week, we're highlighting Upia Akwiang, who is the founder and owner of Kua Body Studios. Here she is to tell you more. Hello, No Limits listeners. My name is Upuya Akyan, the owner and founder of Kua Body Studios and founder of Women Entrepreneurs Launch Wheela. Two of my biggest challenges were, number one, leaving Google after 10 plus years as a top massage therapist. Number two, opening up two massage studios in two cities simultaneously. As a new business owner, how do you find connection and get the word out? In 2016, I solved that problem by creating Women Entrepreneurs Launch, Wheela, in Los Altos, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley, and these events drew over 300 attendees. Wheela is a grassroots organization with the mission to connect as local business owners, celebrate our journey, contribute by giving back to other entrepreneurs and the community at large. Our vision is to create a Wheela chapter in every small town throughout the United States. I'm proud to share that because of Wheela, Kuabadi has become the community's massage destination. Congratulations, Upuya. I wish you continued success. And listeners, you can head over to my Instagram, at Rebecca Jarvis, to hear more from her and how she's created and grown her business. Also, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send me those nominations at no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. You can also send career questions that way. I love hearing from you. I am doing my best to work through all of those questions with really good answers for you. Finally, a shout out to the team who helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks to ABC Radio. I will see all of you listeners here next week.